Chodesh Tov. Hope you're having a wonderful day. We continue. We left off Shabbos. We're at the home stretch, uh, page one thirty-eight, a, in the twentieth chapter. Abaya, the second line from the top. Mankit Abaya, Abaya collected Chumrim Masnis and grouped together rulings found in separate brises and taught them together. Things that you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. They were rabbinically forbidden, and he put it into groupings. Right. Okay. One that are rabbinically prohibited, and one that are biblically, another group of things that are biblically prohibited. And those that are permitted in the third grouping. Okay, so he said, Hagoid, a leather bag. Wineskin. Yeah, a wineskin bag, a hide bag. Yeah. He used to close it with, with strings, drawstrings. And he used to carry liquids with it, wine or milk. When he stopped for the night, he would hang up the bag, would open its, its wide mouth and stretch it over, over sticks, stakes. And the ear circulating around the bag would make sure that it wouldn't spoil, the contents wouldn't spoil. But the prices says you're not allowed to suspend the bag in this way on Shabbos. Because you're making a temporary oil, a temporary tent. When you're building it, when you stretch out the bag and you open it up, you're building a temporary te- uh, tent which you're not allowed to. The next thing he says is Hamashamel, a strainer, Kila, a canopy, a bed, a canopy over the bed. It's an angle. It slopes down on either side, and in the middle it has, on top, it's like the wide of a tefah, like three, a little more than three inches. Notice the horizontal roof has to be at least a tefah wide. Because if it's less than a tefah, it wouldn't even be rabbinically prohibited. It's not called uh, oil, it's not a tent, there's no roof. But if it slants, but on the top it has a width, a horizontal width of at least three inches, a little more than three inches, then it's rabbinically prohibited from setting it up on Shabbos. Now, Rashi says elsewhere, on the contrary, that it has to, we're talking about a roof, a horizontal roof that's less than a tefah. Because if it has a tefah, then it's biblically prohibited. I'm actually making a tent, I'm building right, a tent, yeah, building a that. tent, yeah. Here we're talking about only rabbinically Rabbinic, yeah. The kisei galin and the cheer of galin. The cheer, the, the people of galin, the town of galin, would make sectional beds and cheers. You can disassemble it, you can put it back together, and you can put it up in a new place, and they would reassemble it. So these, all of these things, lo you're not allowed to make them on Shabbos, or in Yantif, in Asan, if you went ahead and did it, Pater, you're exempt, you're not liable to bring a sacrifice, Abel Asr, but rabbinically it's prohibited. Because it's, it's, it's a temporary tent. Putting up the, the, uh, the leather bag or the, and the canopy, it's just temporary. Biblically, only a permanent tent is prohibited. A sectional bed, 
also, the only problem is that we're worried, the rabbis were worried that you maybe you're going to put it too tight with the pegs, and then it's going to be, then you're going to violate a biblical prohibition about, against building or, the, or, or striking the final blow. And, and a strainer, the problem is, like we learned yesterday, it's because it's a, it's, it's a weekday activity. It's separated. No, no. But it may, it may lead you. It may lead you to actually separate, or it may lead you it's to build. To build. Yeah, it, looks like, it looks like building. Therefore, you're not allowed to. Okay. Then he says... Ole you're not allowed to make a permanent tent in Shabbos and Yontiv. If you do make build a permanent tent, you're going camping and you put up a permanent tent, Chayiv Chatos. Then you're liable, you biblically violated the prohibition. The question is, how long does it have to remain to be considered permanent? You're going camping, is that called permanent? I mean, what's the definition of, 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 of permanent? Okay. Then he says... But a bed. But a bed, the And a, a, a chair. Folding chair. Right, a folding chair. Over Asla, folding toilet seat, Mutl and Tezan, you're allowed to spread it out. Even, even rabbinically, you're allowed to spread it out. A simple bed. When it wasn't in use, you just uh, stood it up or, or, or you put it on its side. Or a chair with a leather seat, you can be folded up and put it out of the way when you don't use it. Or asla is also a chair, but it has a hole in the middle. It's like a, a toilet seat. Yeah. So you're allowed to lower it. You're just like you're allowed to lower the toilet seat up and down. It's not a problem. But they have to have the legs attached. You can't attach it to the legs. Right, because you, you didn't create, even though you're putting it on the leg, so you're making an oil. Actually, legs have to be attached. But you're not creating an oil. You just, it's a pre-constructed oil. You're just right. putting it in its right place. Right. Also a chair. Mm-hmm. Because the chair was built in such a way it can be easily opened and closed. So it's already, it's a pre-constructed. Oh, it's, even if yeah, it was closed, like you fold it, a folding chair, and you open right. it up. No problem. Right. No problem. Okay, okay, so that's, so that's what the Abaya Tos Abaya gathered. He said some things biblically is prohibited, some things rabbinically prohibited, and some things are even rabbinically, are, are rabbinically prohibited, and some things even rabbinically are allowed. It says in the Mishnah, the rabbis disagree, we have a lesson and say, that on Shabbos, even if this, uh, the Mishnah discusses if you hang a sieve, a, a, a cloth sieve, and you set it up, it was set up, like you, you, you hang it over the jar, the edges of the jar, and it hangs into the jar, and then you pour wine on it, and it acts as a sieve. So the Mishnah says that, uh, yeah, that the rabbis disagree with Rabbi Lezer, and he says that even if it was set up from before Shabbos, you're not allowed to use it. On Shabbos, What if he went ahead and did use it as a, use the sieve? Is he liable or not? 
Is it biblically prohibited or not? It's only rabbinically. Rav Kanda, shimr chayiv chatas. According to the rabbis, if you went ahead and you sifted, you're liable to bring a sacrifice because it's, it's, it's sifting. It's considered sifting. Maskif lo. Maskif lo asked, the such an extreme argument. Rabbi says, you're allowed to go ahead and do it. And the rabbi said, if you do it, you're liable. It's very strange. Usually it would be an argument, he would say it's rabbinically prohibited, and he would say it's rabbinically allowed. So even though even though we do find in the Talmud there is, are such arguments that are extreme where one says it's biblically prohibited and the rabbis say it's, it's allowed even rabbinically but still that's in the case that an individual Tana will be strict, he'll hold it's biblically prohibited, and the rabbis will disagree and say, you know, it's even rabbinically prohibited. But for the rabbis to say it's biblically prohibited, and one Tana, Rabbi Lezard, has the guts to go against them and say, not only do I say you're wrong, it's biblically, even rabbinically it's allowed. That's, that's already taking it too far. Why not? We have an argument about an ornament called the city of gold. It's shaped. It's, it looks like the city of Jerusalem, but it's, it's an ornament, ornament that the women wear. A clasp. It was a tiara, either a crown or a clasp. An ornament. Yeah, a jewelry. The mayor says a woman who walks out with it in the public has a liable to bring a sin offering. And Abelazer says you're allowed. Even from the start, yeah. Which, where do we see this argument? The time we learn the Braithil, it takes. He should be a woman is not allowed to be learned this earlier. A woman is not allowed to go out on shops wearing the city of gold. She has to bring a sacrifice. And the rabbis say, She shouldn't go out in Yotza Petura. But if she goes out, rabbinically she's not allowed to go out, but if she goes out, she's exempt. Says, Even initially she can go out, there's no problem. What's the, what's the logic? Rameir says it's, it's carrying, it's a burden, it's not an ornament. It's not really, it's not like other jewelry. The rabbis say, no, biblically it's a, it is an ornament. There's no difference in a city of gold ornament or any other piece of jewelry which she's allowed to wear on Shabbos. But rabbinically, we're worried she's going to remove it to show a friend, to show off. It's such a beautiful piece. It's such a special piece item. She will take it off and carry it. And then once she takes it off, she can end up walking with it and carrying it, carrying it on Shabbos. Rabbi Lezer says, no, a city of gold is like any other jewelry. 
And we're not worried that she's going to take it off. Why? Because who, who wears such an ornament? Only billionaires. The wives of millionaires. Only a very special lady. A distinguished woman is not going to remove it to boast about it. She has more class than that. So we're not worried. Typical for her to wear it anyhow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but she's not going to want to show it off to anyone else. She has dignity. Whatever, yeah. So we see that Meir and Abelezer are so far apart. You're biblically liable to bring a sacrifice. You desecrated Shabbos. And going to Abelezer, you go ahead and go wear it. So it's, very, so it's possible that Abelezer allows straining wine on Shabbos, and the rabbis say you're biblically liable. You think Rabbi Lezer is arguing with Rabbi Meir? He's not, he's not addressing himself to the opinion of Rabbi Meir. He's arguing with the rabbis. The ra- Don't forget, there's a three-way argument. The rabbis say, The rabbis say that biblically you're not liable. And, and, but, but rabbinically prohibited. So Rabbi Lezer comes and argues with the rabbis and says, In other words, the rabbis are the one who are arguing with Rabbi Meir. And it's only, a one way, it's, it's only one step down. Rabbi Meir says, You're liable, biblically prohibited. So come to the rabbi and say, No, it's only rabbinically prohibited. That makes sense. Then the next step comes Rabbi Lezer and argues with the rabbis. Also one step, only one step. You say it's rabbinically permitted, I say, I say it's rabbinically uh, permitted. But to go from one extreme to the other, Rabbi Lezer says it's, it's, biblically, it's, it's rabbinically permitted and come to the rabbis and say it's biblically permitted, that, that's a stretch. Yeah, okay, Pace was asked, but still, the bottom line is that Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Lezer are extreme, extremely apart. Right. Why isn't that an right. issue? Right, the spectrum, right. Right. Yeah. They're extremes. Right. So it, why, why doesn't it prove the point? But the rabbis are in the middle, straighten it all out. Okay, but that's, but that's what the Gemara, that's what he, that's what he means. Okay. So now that you're telling me that it's biblically prohibited according to the rabbis, how do you warn him? How are we supposed to warn him? What are we supposed to tell him? You have to tell him, you're not allowed to do this on Shabbos. Why not? You have to be precise, otherwise he won't take it seriously. Right, you, tell him what, what you can't tell me you're not allowed to plow on Shabbos. I'm not plowing. I'm, 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 I'm pouring wine into, into the yeah. sieve. So my rabbi, rabbi, you have to tell him the Torah prohibits from selecting on Shabbos. Right, so this is selecting. You're selecting the bad from the good. The dross from the wine. Right from the good. Right. You have to, the pebbles. You select right. the pebbles right. out of the grain from the grain. Right. So to here, you're not allowed to pour right. the wine through this makeshift sieve. Right. Because you're separating the, the, the sediment, sediment, the sediment, sediment from the wine. Right, right, right. You have to tell him it's in the, because it's sifting. Mm-hmm. Just like you're not allowed to sift the flour. You sift right. the flour right. in the sieve yeah. to remove the, the, uh, the, 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 the shell, the shell, yeah. the impurities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To, that, all that should remain is the, uh, is the uh, flour. So too, you're doing the same concept. The sediment from the wine is the same yeah. idea. So that's an argument in Rabbah and Rabzeda. How do you warn him? 
how, how do you warn him? So Rabbi says, I'm a Rabbi Kavosidim, I think I'm right. That the warning has to be Mishum Beirah. Why? Because what's the normal way of selecting? You remove, you take the food and you leave the leftovers behind. Also here, you're taking the food, you're taking the wine, and what remains in the sieve? The sediment. When you're filtering wine, you take the wine, and what do you leave behind? You're leaving the dregs. I'm taking the food from the dregs. I'm taking the wine from the dregs. So when you're taking, when you're doing a sieve, you can ask yourself, what's happening here? Am I taking the the bad from the good? Or am I taking the good from the bad? Right. It's what. The, so he says, no, I'm, take, I'm taking the good from the bad. I'm taking the good from the bad. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point here. The wine filters out. But the question the is, we learned earlier the exact opposite. Right. That selecting is taking the bad from the good. Right. If you take the good from the bad, it's not a problem. You're allowed to do that. That's what you should do. If you're eating, right, right you take the good from the bad. That's not selecting. Selecting is removing the pebbles from leaving right. the kernels right. and removing the pebbles. Right. 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 So the exact opposite. Uh-huh. What's it opposite saying? Taiswiz tried to answer and Klaal Gadol said that here we're talking about a case where there's more food than inedible items. So you normally, normally you take out the minority, right? If you have to separate, yeah. you'll take out the, the, what, the less, uh, lesser. Are, yeah, a few yeah. things are no good. I'm not going to bother to take out right, the food. Right. So in that case, yes, taking out the, the, the bad from the good, no that's good. called, right, no good. No good. When taking the food from the bad, that's good. Uh, but here we're talking about a case where there's a large quantity of sediment. So it would be easier to remove the food from the bad. A small amount of wine with a lot of sediment. So in this case, it's normal to select... You remove the small quantity of desirable wine from. But anyway, in any event, the idea of, of putting through the sieve, what I'm doing is I'm taking the wine. Right. I'm holding the sieve and I'm putting it over. I'm, ta- I'm taking stuff. the wine, I'm taking the good, and I'm leaving, leaving behind the seven. I'm right. My, what I'm saying makes more sense. Why? When you sift, right? When you sift flour, you, you crush, you grind the grain, and then you sift it. What happens? The undesired part remains in the in this in the sieve, and the flour, the fine flour, falls through the holes. Right. So I'm taking. 
So the, the f- I'm taking the food from, so the, the bad remains above. So the sediments remain in the sieve, and what flows outward is the wine. So sifting is different than selecting. In sifting, the inedible parts remains above, while the edible fall below. In selecting, the edible part of the food remains above, and the inedible parts fall through it. When you take, you take the bad parts of the legumes, let's say, you remove the bad from the good. So what left, what's left? What's left is the good. What's left are the kernels, and you remove the pebbles. So here it's not so. In the case of, of, of the wine, it's not so. What's left is the bad, and what leaves is the, is the wine. So it's similar, it's only similar to sifting. When you sift the crushed, uh, the flour, so what's left is the bad parts, the shell of the, of, the, of the grain, and what falls through is the good part, the, the flour, the, the pure flour. Then you would, you would think that you wouldn't touch the strainer right off the bat. After you, you poured the wine and it's drained out, the first thing you should do is go for the wine no, the wine, it's in a pot. It's in a vessel. If you start to move the strainer, it looks like you... No, if you move the strainer, all you, so you take out all the sediment and you're left but with pure wine. if you move the strainer right off the bed after you've done that, yeah. it seems like you're just... But here, here we're talking about using the strainer. You don't even have to touch the strainer. Using the strainer. So using the strainer... So, <coughs> so Rashi says, according to Rabba, I can warn him either way. Either I can warn him you're not allowed to select, or you're not allowed to sift. Either of them work. Because it is similar. Both are similar. According to Rabba, both are similar. It's similar to sifting because you're right. Sifting, you, you, the, you, um, the bad is on top and, and the good falls down. And just like by wine, the sediment remains on top and the wine falls down. But Rabba says, I can also warn him for selecting. Because there I select I select the good from the bad. So to here, I'm selecting the good from the bad. I'm selecting the wine from, from, from the sediments. Right. But according to Rabbi Zayda, no. I, the only thing I can warn him for is for sifting. If you tell him you're not allowed to select, he doesn't take it seriously because I'm not selecting. It's not similar to select. Because selecting what remains is the food, and here what remains is the bad, the sediment. Or the shell. Okay. Now, it's not simple because we find in Ethics of Our Fathers, Ethics of Our Fathers says there are four types of students. Svei, like a sponge. Mashpech, a funnel. Meshameres, a sieve. Meshameres. Venofa. And also a sieve, no, is for wine, you know, uh, and enough and a sieve for flour. So he says, 
sponge takes everything in. Right. A student takes everything in. Then you have a mashpich. Whatever goes in, goes right out. It, not, it doesn't yeah. retain anything. Right, right. In one ear out the other. Right, one ear out the other. Yeah. Then you have mishameres. Mishameres. The wine leaves him. What's he left with? All the sediment. All he remembers. The uh, Yeah, he remembers a parable the rabbi that's gave. Right. A nice joke. He remembers the jokes. <laughs> what? The, what's the content? That that uh, that's, that that, that doesn't remain. <laughs> But that's all that remains. Uh, and then you have <laughs> the nafa. What's the nafa? The nafa is that the thin flour that's crushed, that's really not so healthy for you, that goes. But the fat part of the flour, the part that's fat, that's held, that's held in the sieve. So the good is held in the sieve. Here he's telling us that the bad remains in the sieve and the good falls down. And that thinks of our fathers, he says that the fat remains inside and the bad falls down. So we have to, we have to understand that. Okay. Your mother says, He's tipping other examples of temporary constructions that you're not allowed to do on Shabbos and Yontif. You're not allowed to make a tent by a folded cloak. Folding a cloak and making a tent. A person would spread a cloak over a framework of four poles. Four poles. Yeah, like a chuppah. And sleep underneath it. So he says a folded cloak because the sides of the cloak were folded down. Right, on the sides, right. Forming like a wall, a shelter. So you want to protect yourself from the sun. So you're making, you're making a temporary uh, makeshift uh, tent. So he says you're not allowed to do that. If you went ahead and did it on Shabbos and Yantiv, since it's temporary, so you're exempt, you're not liable. But rabbinically, it's prohibited. What if there was a string, a rope tied around the cloak before, before Shabbos? <coughs> You're allowed to spread out the cloak and make such a tent even initially. In other words, if it was already, the rolled up cloak was already attached to one of the bars before Shabbos. And the rope was attached like to pull down the curtain, to pull it down and pull it up. You can easily draw it down and then you can put it down. So in that case, it, it, it's already, I already started it. I'm just, I'm just pulling it down. It's not a problem. I can, you're allowed to pull down the shade. It's not a problem. You're adding a temporary tent, and we already learned, according to the rabbis, you're allowed to add to a temporary tent. Okay. What is the law regarding spreading of a canopy? Are you allowed to do it on Shabbos? Even setting up a bed is prohibited. Right? We learned before about the canopy. Spreading over the poles, making a canopy. <clears throat> That's one of the things we learned. Abaya, right? <coughs> Abaya said. <coughs> Abaya said that you're not allowed to. Rabbinically, you're not allowed to set up set up this canopy, even though it's temporary. <coughs> Mitamau. 
What about setting up a bed? Even spreading out a canopy is allowed. Oh, yeah, so you're allowed to set up a canopy. So he said, even the bed you're not allowed. Even setting up a bed may be prohibited. So Afkana then said, how about, what is the law regarding the setting up of a bed? So Rav said, Afkilim Mutar. So it seems contradictory. <laughs> Once he said, and not only aren't you allowed to set up the canopy, you're not allowed to set up a bed. Next thing he said, you're allowed to, not only are you allowed to set up a bed, you're allowed to set up a canopy. And then he asked him another time, he asked him, Kilim Mitamau. What is the law regarding a bed, canopy and a bed? I'm like, kill asurum mitamateres. The canopy is permitted and the bed is permitted. But it says like kasha. All these three statements are not a contradiction. And he explains. Each one is talking about a different case. Oh, the komaraf mitasura. When did he tell him? Not only is the canopy prohibited, even setting up a bed is prohibited. Kidakarmenoi. A sectional bed. Similar to those of Karmenoi, this, this place. These were identical to the beds used by the residents of Galen, which were sectional. And we said, you're not allowed to because you may come to, 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 to do it permanently. Right. And that which Rav said, even a canopy is allowed. Look at the Rami First, the teaching of Rami Vayicheskel. Rami Vayicheskel said that if there was a string or rope tied before, then I'm just adding to it, and it's allowed, you're allowed to add to a temporary ten. And when he says, Ki refers to our beds and canopies, like we learned earlier, a canopy, you're not allowed to make rabbinically, but a bed, a normal bed would be pre-assembled, lean against the wall until it was time to use, and then it's like a... Uh, you know, a high riser, or you just fold it down, and that's okay. A uh, folding chair, and you open it up, that's okay, that's allowed. I have seen the canopies of the house of Rav Hunna, the Meurut, the I saw that in the evening, Friday evening, they were spread out on the top for a chavitu, and the next morning they were thrown down to the ground. They were thrown on the ground. In other words, they allowed them to collapse the canopies on Shabbos, and therefore, if you're allowed to collapse it, you're also allowed to spread it out on the canopies on Shabbos. Because they're both connected. I'm not allowed to build, and I'm not allowed to disassemble. If it's considered an oil, I'm not allowed to build it, and I'm not allowed to demolish it. So if I'm allowed to disassemble it, I'm also allowed to assemble it. Why? Why was it allowed? Maybe because, like we said, we just learned, the canopies were already in place and ropes were attached to them for Shabbos. And it was just a matter of spreading it. You can be easily spread out. A curtain you can hang and you can take down on the Shabbos. The curtain is a screen for the entranceway. So you're allowed to hang and take it down on Shabbos. 
Because making a tent only, Rashi says, only on the, on the roof, not on the walls. Paiswis disagrees. Shmuel said, Another thing he said, name Ravchia. We continue in side B. Killers chasanim. The canopy of a bridal bed. Mutal and tesem, mutal efeik. You're allowed to hang it. You're allowed to take it down on Shabbos because it's mainly sloping sides. It doesn't have any horizontal roof, so it's totally sloped. So therefore, it's not considered even a tent in any way, shape, or form. It was like a triangle. So as long as there's less than a tefach, horizontal on top, he says you're allowed to do it. When do we say this? Only if it doesn't have an hour horizontal section at the top, it's a tefach wide three inches. Yes, we got a tefach, but it has a horizontal uh, uh, on top. It's a little more than three inches, then it's forbidden to hang it up on Shabbos. But then it is considered a temporary tent. Even if it does not have a tefach width on the top. When do we say it's allowed to spread it out on Shabbos? The bridal canopy. With the slope of the canopy is so steep that you don't have you don't have an amount of a tefach within three tefachim of the top. Then it's awesome. If the width of the canopy amounts to a tefach within three tefachim, within three tefachim, you have a tefach, it's forbidden to hang and take down on the shops. So if within three tefachim from the top, within a little more than nine inches from the top, let's say up until the bottom, up until nine inches, if, if you have a width there of one tefach, of three inches, then it's prohibited. Because anything within three inches is still, it's levud, it's still considered like the top. That means the top has a horizontal width of a, of, of a tefach. Then it isn't considered a temporary tent. So as long as within three inches from the top, it does not extend horizontally to a width of three of of one te- of one tefa, then you're allowed. Only then are you allowed. And even if the width of the canopy does not amount to a tefa within three tefachim of the apex, but this. For this permission that we give to extend the canopy. Is only. 
where there is not a tefach. And he says, and the third condition is that even where it slants down on the bottom of the bed, the base of the bed, so you have the pole in the middle, and then you have between the pole, so the pole itself that holds the apex on top has to be less than a tefah, less than, three, less than uh, three inches. From the pole to the edge of each side of the bed also has to be less than a tefah, less than three inches. So you're talking about a bed that's less than three tefachim. You're talking about a bed that's like, that's uh, nine inches. What kind of bed is it? Who can sleep in a bed that's nine inches? What are we talking about here? So it actually says maybe it was for decorative purposes. It wasn't actually used, used for sleeping. Others say, no, it could be used for sleeping, but he had many canopies. Maybe he had three canopies to the bed. And each canopy was narrow, so narrow, so therefore it does not constitute a tent. If there's a tefah beneath its slope, it's forbidden to hang it up and take it down on Shabbosh. The sloping sides of canopies are themselves regarded as canopies. They have the same status as the horizontal roof type part of the canopy. The rabbis prohibit if it's a tefah in width, so too, if at any point in the slope, even on the bottom of the slope, if there's a width of a tefah, it would be prohibited. So it has to be, so, but this is not the halacha. The halacha is so elsewhere in the Talmud. We don't accept this concept. We consider the roof, a, a tent, it has to be, the roof has to be horizontal or close, or the three tvachim within the roof. The nine inches within the roof has to be horizontal width of a tefach, to be considered a tent. Another qualification, If the end of the bottom end of the canopy does not extend the tefach below the bed, three inches below the bed, if it extends below the bed, if it hangs outside the bed, extends one tefach, then that's like walls, and the bed itself is a roof. So now I'm making a tent of the bed, the bottom of the bed, and now it has walls, becomes a, a temporary tent from underneath the bed. So how are you allowed to spread a cover over a bed or a tablecloth over, under a table since it's hanging over the table with the table as the roof and under the table I'm making a temporary tent. If it's hanging a tefach, three inches, below the table or below the bed, it should be prohibited. So they say, no, the Gemara is talking about only in a case where you're actually making a tent above. It just extends also under, below. So then we say that the canopy is part of a tent, but a sheet spread over a bed it was never placed there for the purpose of a tent or a tablecloth. It was never meant to be a tent. So therefore, the bed and the table is not considered an oil. 
and they were like, gosh, it's not a difficult that these be tefer, let's be tefer. Depends how wide the brim of the hat is. If it's a tefer, then it has the status of a tent. If it's nine inches wide, I'm sorry, if it's, if it's three inches wide, such a wide brim, yes, then it's like a tent. Or the less be tefer, if it's, if it's the, the brim of the hat is less than three inches, then... If it's three inches or less, then it's a, if it's a little more than three inches, it's prohibited. If it's three inches or less, it's allowed. Elamata, If you were to extend your cloak, a tefer, beyond the front of your head, you're telling me that I'm making a tent and it's prohibited? If you cover your head with his coat and you pull it forward until it juts out from your head a tefach. Three inches. You're going to, a little more than three inches. You're going to tell me that I'm making a tent and it's prohibited. So we have to say a head covering is not a tent. Especially there are no walls. It's a garment. It's not a tent. So when the bride says you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to wear a hat that has wide brimmed hat. If it's fitted tightly, or it's not fitted tightly. Uh, the bride says it's prohibited. You're talking about a hat that's not fitted tightly. So since it could fall off, that's why you're not allowed to wear it in public. Nothing to do with a tent. You're worried it's going to fall off and then you're going to walk with it the rest of the way. But if the hat is fit tightly, then I'm not worried. It's nothing to do with a tent. A hat is not a tent. It's ridiculous. A hat is a tent. It's garment. That's the conclusion of the Gemara. The reason the bride says you're not allowed to wear a wide-brimmed hat is because it's going to be blown away by the wind. And then you're going to carry it the rest of the way. So it depends if it's, if it's secured tightly or not. If it's sitting tightly on your head or not. Sholach later on, Rabbi Cheskel, Rabbi Hunner, Rabbi Cheskel, Emelach, Izi, Hanim, Milimal, Yisrael. Tell us, my friend. Excellent teachings that you told us in the name of Rab. Two concerning laws of Shabbos and one concerning the Torah itself. Shalach Le'Ravunas and the following we learned in the Braise you're allowed to hang a leather bag by its straps on the Shabbos. 
This is only it's hung by two people. But a single person cannot hang it. two people mounting the bag won't spread it out tightly they used to open the bag we learned earlier it used to contain wine and they used to open it so it should ear it out so the, the content shouldn't spoil you're not allowed to open its straps and hang it on its peg when the straps were not set into the bag but if The, the straps are set into the bag, I'm allowed to mount the leather bag by its straps. So if two people are mounting it, they won't spread it out tightly. So it's not even a, a temporary tent. A single person, however, will tie one end and then stretch out the bag before tying the other end. So it's a very tightly drawn bag which looks like a tent. And that's that's prohibited. That's one thing. Abayamar. Said, a canopy, you're not allowed to spread out even by 10 people. Why? Because it's impossible that even a small portion of it won't be spread out properly. So it's always going to resemble a tent. And that's prohibited on Shabbos, Rabbinin. Either of my, what's the other thing that he taught from Shabbos, a law of Shabbos? He said he sent two laws of Shabbos. An oven which had one of its legs broken off. You're allowed to move it on Shabbos. If two legs broke off, however, you're not allowed to move it on Shabbos. An oven is a utensil that's used for forbidden purpose, for cooking, for baking. You're not allowed to move it. Unless you need the space, you need its spot. So even though one of the legs is broken, it's still considered usable. Because you can stand on the three remaining legs. But once it loses two of its legs, it can no longer be used. It can't stand on two legs. And therefore, it's no longer considered a utensil. And if it's not a utensil, I'm not allowed to move it on Shabbos altogether for any reason. Even if it lost one leg, it's also prohibited. Why? It can still stand. The rabbis were afraid you're gonna fix you're gonna fix it tightly, which is which is like building. Even though it's not mukta and you can use it, you can move the oven if you need a spot. But the rabbis say you're not allowed to. Why? Because you, we're afraid, the rabbis are afraid you're gonna try to fix it. By reattaching the leg. 
even though if you reattach it loosely, it's not a problem. The rabbis were concerned that you're going to attach it tightly. And that's prohibited, that's building. Rashi says not building because he, there's no building when it comes to utensils, but it's, it's, the, uh, it's the category of striking the final blow, of concluding and finishing, finishing the utensil. That's Rav's opinion. The, the Tana, the Raisa we learned, said, no, the rabbis were only afraid if two legs would come off. One leg would come off since it could stand on its own. They're not worried that, you, that you, you're so desperate that you're going to... There's no urgency that we're afraid that on Shabbos you're going to come to make a leg and put it in tightly. What's the teaching about Taita, concerning Taita? In the future, Taita will be forgotten from the nation of Israel. Hashem will make extraordinary your blows. What do you mean? Extraordinary. When he says, when it says in Isaiah, I will do extraordinary things amongst this people, exceedingly extraordinary. That Afla is referring to forgetting the Torah, forgetting the wisdom of the Torah. Extraordinary suffering. And then he concludes over there, they're going to lose... The wisdom of the wise man shall perish. It refers to the Torah. So when he says, Hashem will make extraordinary blows, it's referring to the, they'll forget the Torah. One of the rabbis learned, when the rabbis entered the vineyard of Yardin, when they set up the Sanhedrin, they set up the Sanhedrin. Of Yavna, the second Rabbi Gamliel, and they used to sit around like in a vineyard. You sit around like in a circle, in rows, mm. like like like, a, like rows of vines. So they said, they said, I see the Torah talking to Israel. Will come a time when Torah will be forgotten from the nation of Israel. As it says in Amos. There'll, there'll come a time, Hashem declares, I'll send a hunger into the land. Not a hunger for bread, not a thirst for water. But a thirst to hear the word of Hashem. Because there will be such a lack of Torah, and people will be so thirsty to hear the word of Hashem. And it's written in the next verse in Amaz, uh, describing the search. And they shall journey from sea to sea and from north to east. They wander to seek the word of Hashem. So they will not find it. The word of Hashem refers to halacha. That's the word of Hashem. And it says in the Pasuk in Deuteronomy, to relate to you the word of Hashem. So there will come a time people will, people will not be able to find a person who has the knowledge of Allah. 
The word Hashem Zuakes. The word of Hashem refers to the end of exile. Rashi says he doesn't know what's the source for this. The Devar Hashem refers to the end of the exile. Taisva says we find in Ezra, it says, Lichlis Devar Hashem appear to the conclusion of Hashem's word with the mouth of Yirmiyah, which refers to the end of the 70 year exile. So the end, the end of the exile. So Devar Hashem Zayakates. Devar Hashem Zunavuah, the word of Hashem refers to prophecy. As it says in Hesheya, Dvar Hashem Ashahoya El Hesheya, the word of Hashem that came to Hesheya. So, the end of the period of prophecy, which was at the beginning of the second temple, the Dvar Hashem came to an end. They couldn't find Dvar Hashem, couldn't find prophecy. What does it mean they go wander to seek the word of Hashem? Amru. They said, I see the Isha A woman will take a loaf of truma bread, which was in a tummy oven. The tafsir, but they can see is a bottom just lay them to and she'll go she'll go around all the houses of prayer, the houses of study, to find out whether it's tummy, pure or impure, vain maven, and no one will understand the taira enough to give her a clear answer. What's the question? Why won't anyone know? It's, a, it's, a, it's an open pasuk. It says clearly in the verse, that foods which are eaten, that food could become contaminated. So food is in a non-kosher, a non-impure oven. The food itself becomes impure. How could it be forgotten? Can't be referring to laws that are explicitly written in the Torah. It's written. The question that the woman has is whether the contaminated truma is first degree of truma or a second degree of truma. They may never know and be able to answer that question. The, the rat or the mouse is, a, is the source of truma, and that contaminated the oven. That's called a rishnah truma, first degree of truma, an offshoot of truma. And the Rishin could impart the impurity to another object, another food item, which becomes a second degree of Tumma, a grandson of Tumma. So she's sure that the bread is Tummay, but she's not sure whether the bread is a first degree or second degree. And the difference is because a first degree could impart to any food or beverage, where a second degree could only impart to other Tumma. Or to consecrated food, not regular food. Even this is also a Mishnah. We learn in the Mishnah. If a shed, it's a dead mouse. Or a rat is found in the oven. The bread in the oven is second degree. Because the oven is a first degree impurity. So the Mishnah clearly states that the oven's ear space is like a first degree that imparts into the bread a second degree of impurity. So what was her uncertainty? What was the great question? Again, when the Torah predicts that the Torah will be forgotten, he can't be referring to laws which were later, later explicitly taught in the Mishnah. Surely they knew the laws of the Mishnah. And especially now the Mishnah is written down. Mishnah was written. 
The question is regarding Ravada Barava said that his question was, let us look at the oven as though it was full of tumah, as if the rat itself touched the bread. So it shouldn't just be a second degree of tumah. Maybe the bread should be considered the first degree of impurity and should be able to impart impurity to other food items. Because the law of a tanur, of an oven, of an earthen oven, is that, that it's the ear that's impure. It doesn't have to touch the bread. Just being in the oven, so the whole oven, the whole atmosphere in the oven now becomes impure. So let us so consider as if the oven itself touches it. We do not say that the oven is always full of tumor. We learn in the Braise, I would think that any utensil should contract tumor if it's in the airspace of the earthenware vessel because it's as if the mouth is touching it directly. Because utensils cannot receive impurity from a first degree of impurity, only from a source of impurity, a father of impurity. Only food items become impure. Only food becomes impure in the in the ear, in the space of the uh, of the earthen vessel. But utensils do not contract in the ear space of an earthenware vessel. So obviously, it's not as if the rat is touching them directly. The dead mouse. But it's a second degree. So since it's a question, Rabbi Adah asked a question about this Mishnah's ruling. So the later rabbis didn't know, didn't understand. God forbid, heaven forbid that the title will be forgotten from Israel. It says clearly in Ammais that the title will never be forgotten from, from, from the offsprings. So what does Ammais mean? In this prophecy that they're going to be searching for the word of Hashem, They'll be wandering to seek out, and they won't find it. Shleimtu means shleimtu halacha bruder mishnah makam bruder makam They won't find a clear halacha and clear teachings in any one place where they shall seek. There won't be a consensus of opinion about the reasons for many halachic rulings. So therefore, there's going to be constant halachic disputes. Clear halacha mishnah bruder. Clear halacha in one place means the reasoning behind the rulings. Clear teachings refers to the text of the Mishnah. Halacha bruder, Mishnah bruder. We understand the reasoning behind the law. We have a clear text. So that's the extraordinary suffering visited on the Jewish people. There's going to be so much confusion and so much halachic dispute.
what the Ben Yayada points out, on the kind of, but this is for the benefit of the Jewish people. Now we have to toil very hard, we have to work very hard to clarify the halacha, which is, uh, which is a tremendous, tremendous merit. Everyone have good chaydash, have a wonderful day.